If you went to your doctor tomorrow morning, he wanted you to come into uh, his office because something wasn't right. If you went into your doctor tomorrow morning and he said, hey, listen, I, I needed to see you because I've got some bad news. And the reality is, is that you're dying. You only have weeks, maybe days to live. Go there with me just for a second. Some of you are nodding at me because you've been there and maybe in that position somewhat, or that you felt like maybe you were headed in that direction. What would you do? What would you think? What would be most important in your life in that moment? How would you prioritize what you wanted to get done, what you wanted to see done, the things you'd want to say? You know, since the advent of the video camera, people who've had to face that unbelievably horrific situation have begun to use this technology. There was a woman in California by the name of Fawn Lee. She was 35, 35. She had three children, but she also had stage four lung cancer. She was dying in just a few months. She used her video camera and she started making messages to her children. She wanted to be a mom for her children, not just as they were little, but as they grew up. And so she made a message for each child. For each child when they graduated high school, for each child when they got married, and for each child when the marriage wasn't going so great, she wanted to be able to speak into their lives as a mom. Another gentleman by the name of John Lowe lived in New York City. He was a lawyer. He thought he was dying. He began to do the same thing. He videotaped these messages. He ended up living, but what he did was start a company called Keep Tree. And it's a place where you can store videos to loved ones and he will send them out. His company will send those videos out to loved ones for the next 99 years if you schedule it that way. As long as they have their email address or they have their phone number, his company gets that message to those people you want to get a message to when you want to get it to them. It's a very powerful and strong and interesting concept that you could speak to your family. You could give them wisdom from beyond the grave even after you're gone. I tried to put myself sort of in this place this week a little bit. I started thinking, what, what would I do? If my doctor told me that, he said, Drew, you have days or weeks to live. We don't know how long, but you don't have long. And I just started praying about it, thinking about it. What are the things that I would do? What would be important in my life? What would be important for the people that I love the most? And the thing that I realized is that, you know, and I think maybe all of us would have this kind of thought is this. There are some places that I love to go. I would probably want to be home. I would maybe even want to go to some of my favorite places. I love the beach. I love the mountains. I love certain restaurants, right? So I'm going to hit some of those restaurants, if I'm being honest. There's certain places that we love to be, and they make us feel at home, the places we can breathe. And then, of course, places are not that important without what? People. And so there's going to be very special people that we want to be with. So we want to be in a special place. We want to be with special people because those people are the ones that give us life. They make us laugh. We, we enjoy them. They're, they're soul connections. You know who I'm talking about. And then beyond the places and beyond the people that are special to us, we want, for those people, we want to prepare them for what life is going to be like when we're gone. 
right? Uh, at least for me, that's, those seem to be the three most important things that, that would happen in my life. I'd want to go to certain places, be with certain people, and I would want to prepare them for when I was gone. And I started looking at Scripture, and I realized Jesus did the same thing. I never thought of Jesus. You know, we're, we're coming close here to Holy Week. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and in two weeks from today is Easter. And as believers, we celebrate his death and burial and resurrection every day, especially every Sunday. And then, of course, at this time of year, we even look forward to it even more because this is what we remember this time of year. We really focus on it. We think about it. And it, it's, it's such a special moment for us, but I started thinking, I've never considered Jesus in, in kind of in a concept of being terminal. You know, Jesus didn't have some disease that was going to kill him, but he was dying. He knew he was going to die. He knew the moment he would die. He, he knew. And so in the same way, he would have maybe had the same mindset and do the same things and begin to make sure that he left the things he wanted to leave with the people he loved, and he might, he might even do it in the places that he loved. And so I looked in his word, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. The place, the people, and what he wanted to prepare them with. There's one thing we can know for sure is, just like us, Jesus would have wanted to make sure that he used incredible purpose and intentionality on the things that he said and the things that he did and all that happened so that he prepared them for his time when he would be gone. So just before Passion Week, you know, this is somewhere, I don't know, 12, 12 days, 13 days, two weeks. I'm not, we're not sure how, how much exactly, but uh, we know that Jesus began to do some things. And we want to look at these last couple of weeks, these last days of his life. Um, he went to a place that was special to him. There's a little town called Bethany. And uh, Jesus did a lot in Bethany. Uh, he loved it. It's one of his favorite places, I think, just by what happened there, right? Bethany's this little tiny town that's just southeast of Jerusalem. It's only two miles from Jerusalem. And so Jesus could have spent time in, in Jerusalem or around the, the villages of Jerusalem and then actually gone back to Bethany and spent the night or his disciples could have gone there. He spent a lot of time in Bethany. I started thinking, well, why was Bethany so special? And I began to remember some things uh, that have happened in Bethany. I want to remind you of a few of them. First one is in John 1, at the end of the chapter, we see Jesus walks up on his cousin, John the Baptist. John's baptizing people. And as Jesus walks up, he says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So right there, he kind of outs Jesus and basically says, this is the Messiah of whom I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. In that moment, you know, Jesus had always been Messiah, but in that moment, his public ministry began. He, he, he began to, people began to see him in a different way. It wasn't just the carpenter's son. Something had changed. This is in Bethany where this happened. Then, of course, John then baptizes Jesus in this beautiful moment. He comes up, and then we see this, the presence of the Trinity together in the Word. So we see God the Father say, hey, this is my Son. Out loud, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and then we see the Holy Spirit light on Jesus as a dove. It's an important moment, almost like God the Father saying, this is the commissioning service for the ministry of Jesus. He's 30 years old, and for the next three years, he's, he's going to focus in ministry, and he's going to do some amazing things. This is a special moment in a special place. Right after his uh, baptism, he does something else that's special. 
one of John the Baptist's uh, disciples, a guy by the name of Andrew, he, he, he heard John the Baptist say, the Lamb of God. And so he's like, I'm, out, I'm done with John the Baptist. I want to follow this guy. Hey, where are you going? I want to see where you're staying. What, what's, what's going on with you? What makes you different? And so he shows him. And Jesus ends up calling Andrew to be his disciple. And Andrew says, well, I got to go tell my brother what's going on. And of course, Andrew runs and tells his brother. His brother is Simon, right? And Jesus changed Simon's name to what? Peter. This all happened in Bethany. And then later in the Gospels, we see that Jesus brings his disciples back to this special place, Bethany. And this is where it's going to take place for his ascension. There's no question Bethany is a special place to Jesus. He's got lots of memories. He's got lots of relationships built right here, right in this little village just outside of Jerusalem. But like any place that you go, it's not that special a place without the people that you spend time with, right? And so Jesus had a family in Bethany that he loved, loved very much. I want us to take a look in our first text this morning in uh, the book of Luke chapter 10. And we see the first interaction with his family in uh, Bethany. Let's, let's read this. Luke 10, 38 says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Well, then tell her to come help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. What's interesting about this little tiny story about this family is Immediately, we begin to see the personalities of these two sisters. People told my wife and I, you know, when we begin to have kids, you're not going to believe how different their personalities are going to be. It's going to blow you away. And I'm just kind of like, I guess. I mean, they're from the same two people. How could they be that different, right? <laughs> so you have kids, you know? So I got to tell you this little story. So I took my daughters not long ago to a daddy-daughter dance. And uh, I've never taken my daughters to a daddy-daughter dance. We didn't have an opportunity to. So we were pretty excited about this. And we were going to boogie, right, at the, in, the, in the school cafeteria. It was going to be on. It was going to be awesome. And so we all dressed up, the three of us, and we went to the daddy-daughter dance. And uh, we, it's towards the end of the dance. And I saw a scene playing out that I thought was cute and funny. So I, I got my, grabbed my phone, and I went over, and I started videotaping my two little girls. My oldest was sitting on the bleachers like this which is basically my personality. And my youngest, you can guess what she's doing. She's twirling around, she's dancing, she's jumping. This is the end of the night and she was not ready for the dance to be over, you know what I mean? And I got this picture on video and I'm seeing, they're both, I mean, not three feet from each other and I'm just filming and I sent that picture, that video to my wife. I said, can you tell who is your personality and which one is mine, you know? <laughs> it's so funny how we're different from our siblings. And in this little story of Martha and Mary, we get to see how different they are from each other. I think there's, I mean, I don't know this for sure, but it just seems to me that Martha's the older sister, right? She just seems a little bossy. She seems like she needs Mary to do what she says to do. And she feels like she's sort of taken on like um, the responsibility to get things done. And we begin to see that Mary, yes, she's a doer, but the thing about uh, Martha, I'm sorry, she's a doer, but the thing about Martha is sometimes she misses the relational aspect of life with people. 
in all that she's doing, but not Mary. We see Mary's personality. We see what's important to Mary. Mary is a worshiper. She's sitting at Jesus' feet. She's listening to him. She's, she's appreciating his presence. And immediately we see the difference in the two. I kind of happen to believe that uh, maybe Martha was a pretty good cook, too. And maybe Jesus enjoyed coming to Bethany for some good food, too. No telling. Now, what's interesting about this story is we don't hear about their brother in this story. We only hear about Martha and Mary. But they had a brother. His name was Lazarus. And I want to kind of just paraphrase the story for you. Instead of reading the whole chapter in John 11, you can look at it later. Look at it as I'm speaking through it. But John 11 introduces us to their brother. His name's Lazarus. So what happens is he gets sick. Mary and Martha decide to send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. But what's interesting is they don't say, hey, Lazarus is sick. They send word that, hey, the one whom you love is sick. Now, does that tell us anything about the relationship of Lazarus and Jesus? Jesus would have known. If this message is coming from Mary and Martha, they're talking about Lazarus, my friend, the one I love. That's like, she didn't even have to put his name on the message. He loved him so much. They were very close. They had a very close relationship. So the disciples would have stayed there with Jesus. They would have known this relationship. They would have known this is an important message. And what does Jesus do? Right out of the chute, Jesus says this. Hey, guys. Lazarus is not going to die. I mean, he, he proclaims the truth right at the very beginning. Lazarus isn't going to die, you guys. But God is going to use this illness and this thing we're about to experience to glorify himself and to glorify his son. Kind of like, hang in there with me. Lazarus is not going to die. But we know what happens, right? We, we move on a little bit further. Now, in, in verse 5, it says that... Uh, Jesus loved Martha and Mary. Again, just a, a little description of how much this family meant to him here in Bethany. I don't know about you, but when, when somebody is sick in my family, you stop what you're doing, don't you? You rush to the hospital. You, you rush to their home. What, what do we need? What do we need to do? Is there a way we can help? Do we need to serve? You know what I'm talking about. The people that are closest to you, you want to make sure that they have what they need that you, because you love them so much. But interestingly, that's not what Jesus does. In this moment, Jesus, you just sense that Jesus even pulls back. He doesn't rush to the need. He doesn't rush to the aid. In fact, Mary and Martha might have even known, of course, they knew he could heal. They might have even heard the story of Jesus speaking to the centurion's son, saying he could live, and, and he didn't even have to go to the man's home. The boy lives. Maybe they just needed Jesus just to say live or get well and they trusted that it would happen, but it's not what happened. And what we can learn from that is this. What we think ought to happen all the time is not necessarily what needs to happen. Sometimes we want to put a demand on God and say, but if you would just do this, I just, that's what needs to happen. What we need to learn from this is God's timing is not our timing. It's not, and we don't see his perspective. And sometimes he wants to do something we don't understand. But he loves us. He loves us, and he wants to use every moment of our lives to bring himself glory. He always has a greater purpose than just to meet an immediate need. He always has a greater purpose. Keep that in your heart and your mind as we continue to talk about this. So Jesus tells his disciples, he says, guys, 
He waits for two days and he says, guys, I got to tell you, Lazarus is asleep. And they didn't even understand what he was saying. He's like, guys, he's dead. Lazarus is dead. And we need to go to Bethany, right? Um, And even in that moment, Jesus is saying, hey, guys, he reminds me again, God's going to use this. And even as he began to see that and say that to them, I, I just began to think, you know what? Jesus is doing that third thing that any of us would want to do, be in the place we wanted to be with the people we wanted to be with. And he was beginning to prepare people for the time when he's gone. He's beginning to prepare them for the time that he's gone. So Jesus comes into Bethany. He walks into Bethany, Martha, older sister Martha, remember Martha? She hears Je- Jesus is in town. She's not very happy. Now, have you ever seen that insurance commercial? It's a pretty new commercial. I forget what company it is. But it shows different scenarios of people using the same phrase. You know what I mean? So there's this girl. She walks out of her house and she sees a brand new car. It's a nice car. And she goes, oh my gosh, is this my car? You know what I'm talking about? She's very excited. She's just got a brand new car. It shows a guy come out of a building And he sees his car up on blocks, vandalized, messed up. And he goes, oh my gosh, is this my car? Do you know the commercial I'm talking about? Did they say the same thing? Did it mean something different? See, we can say the same thing and have a completely different meaning. And that's what we're about to see here with Martha and Mary. Jesus comes into town. Martha hops up. She's like, "Uh oh yeah, we're going to find out what the deal is here. She goes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And just remember, remember the attitude of Martha before. There's a reason this story is there in Luke, right? Remember when she said, Jesus, she's not working. Tell her to get up and serve with me. What is that attitude? Does it sound like a good attitude? I mean, should we be telling the creator of the world that he should do something for us? That same attitude is in Martha here in this moment, I believe. She walks out and says, if you hadn't been here, if you had been here, my my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? And Jesus has to rebuke her. He has to to define for her who he is. He says, whoa, whoa, Martha, your brother's going to rise again. She said, well, I know he's going to rise again at the end of time on the day of resurrection, sure, but you weren't here. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I am the resurrection of the I want us to read that. So powerful. He has to define for her who he is like she's forgotten. John 11, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He has to ask Martha this question. Do you believe this? Because right now you're acting like you don't. Do Do you believe this? It's like it kind of woke her up to what mattered most, didn't it? And she says, yes, Lord. Yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She needed a wake-up call. She needed some help. And listen, it's easy to get lost in your emotions. It's easy to get lost in grief and forget that God has a plan that you might not see. It's easy. And in this moment, Jesus lovingly rebukes her. He lovingly speaks to her in a way that's going to foreshadow what she needs most. And you know what that is? She needs most to remember that he is the resurrection and the life when she sees his cold, dead body in a a week. 
she's going to need to remember that he is resurrection. And so, in loving way, he's preparing her heart, not for Lazarus' resurrection, for his own, for his own. He's trying to set the stage so that she'll have the faith she needs when he's gone. So, Martha runs back into the house. She says, Mary, Jesus is out there. He wants to see you. The story says that Mary jumps up out of her seat and runs to Jesus. And all the people sitting around are confused, like, where is she going? To the tomb? To Let's go with her. So they all jump up and they all run. But she responds differently to Jesus than Martha. She says the same thing. She says the exact same thing that Martha says, but it meant something different. Mary runs to Jesus and she falls at his feet. She falls at his feet. You see the attitude change? You see the difference in the two? John John wants to show us that there's there's a difference in the way we respond. Listen, there will always be two ways to respond to tragedy in your life. There will always be two ways to respond to God when something difficult is going on. Two ways. And church, we need to learn what those are so we can follow one of them. One is to say, God, you should have been here, and you should do this and that and that. And God will have to remind us who he is, that he is resurrection and he is life. Or we can follow Mary's example, and we can fall at the feet of Jesus, and we can submit to what he's doing, and we can trust his timing is greater than our immediate need and our immediate understanding. Let's read this text, can we? Notice here before we read this, which of these postures moves Jesus' heart? Look here, John eleven thirty two. 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, I know if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come out with her, Also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And this is that famous little two-word verse, Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, oh, see how much he loved him. A couple of things I want us to notice in this text. One is this, honest questions don't bother God. Honest grief, honest brokenness doesn't bother God. But surrender moves his heart. Do you hear that? We can come to him and say, Lord, I don't understand this, and I'm sad. But when we come to him with the right heart and the right posture, we don't have to be reminded of who he is. Instead, we're saying, Lord, we know who you are. Your creator, God, we know who you are. We surrender to your plan and what you're doing because we know you love us. And that posture will move God's heart. That posture will move God's heart. I, um, this is a very interesting text to me. Jesus was moved, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And even though the Jews, it says the Jews said, oh, see how he loved him. I don't think they understood what was going on in that moment. I want to break this down just for a second if I can. Um, How many of you know the difference in crying and weeping? (laughs) Would you say there's a difference? There's a big difference. A good commercial can get me crying, right? I mean, I cry all the time. You know I do. I just finished crying right up here. 
I do it all the time. But that wasn't weeping. I'll never forget this. It's a very special memory to me. Lori and I were infertile for almost nine years, and we finally had our first little girl. And she fit perfectly in my arms. Her head fit right here, and she's wrapped up like a little burrito, right, which is the cutest. Her head's here. Her feet are here. She fit perfectly right where she's supposed to in daddy's arms. And I'll never remember, I'll never forget feeding her, rocking her in her little room. We had all perfect, you know. And something happened a few months later. (laughs) Like I hadn't even noticed the time go by. I hadn't, because I probably wasn't sleeping very much, you know what I'm saying? But I'm, I'm holding Daisy, I'm feeding her, I'm rocking her. And I look at her head, touching this arm, and I go look over here, and her feet aren't, aren't here anymore. Her knees are hanging over my arm. That doesn't sound that significant to you. <laughs> but all I can tell you in that is in that moment, I felt something um, spiritual and deep and moving and troubling. This baby was growing. She wasn't always going to be my baby. I felt the weight of nine years of waiting for her. I felt the great love that would die for her in a heartbeat. I felt the moment that I might feel when she graduates high school or when she gets married or when she gets baptized. She got baptized last Sunday. She's 11. She's almost as tall as her mom and I get them confused all the time. It's crazy. But in that moment, I felt the gravity. I felt, I felt something more than just, oh, look, she's growing. That makes me sad. No, that wasn't it. I felt something deep in my soul. Lori and her mom were just outside her bedroom in the kitchen. And Lori really quietly and very lovingly, she just came and she pulled the door closed. Because <laughs> I wasn't crying. I'm telling you, I was weeping like a baby. She pulled the door closed and just let me be alone. And I wept for 30 minutes straight over the goodness of God and the sadness that life moves at an unbelievable pace. And I was realizing it all in that moment. Listen, Jesus wasn't crying because Lazarus had died. You know why? Because he's about to raise him to life. It makes no sense to cry over somebody that you, Jesus is about to throw a party in there. Jesus is about to see these people laughing and dancing and jumping and so excited. So he's not crying over the fact that Lazarus is dead. There's something deeper. He is weeping at something deeper. What would it be? Well, number one, we know that he's moved because he's compassionate. Jesus is compassionate with those that are his. He sees, the Bible says he sees Mary, he sees all the Jews weeping, he sees the brokenness of what's happening, he sees the effects of sin and death, and he is compassionate. Hebrews 4, 15 says that we have a high priest that is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so our high priest is seeing all this, he's taking it in, he's compassionate. He loves us so much, he'll weep with us when we weep. Will you think about that for a moment? The God of the universe will weep with you and your heart is broken. He's a compassionate friend. But there's something else. There's something deeper. There's even more gravity than that. He sees the sin 
that has entered the world that he created is the very thing that killed Lazarus. Go with me for a second. Genesis 1, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, they all speak of Jesus being in creation, but not just being there, doing it. Colossians 1, all things were made for him and through him and by him, right? Jesus knew in, in the beginning, in creation, this perfection he created. And the one thing that wasn't supposed to be there is death. It wasn't supposed to exist there. And I think in that moment, he's feeling the gravity of what sin does to the world. I think there's something else he's feeling. In just about a week, he's going to have to pay for that sin. In just a few days, he's going to have to hang on a cross and pay for that sin that put Lazarus in the grave with his own body and his own blood. And he's feeling the weight of that. Luke chapter 12 says that Jesus felt distressed. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he sweats drops of blood, which is a, a condition of unbelievable stress. Jesus was feeling the weight of the sin he would have to pay for. And then there's one other thing. If you keep reading in John chapter 11, you know that because Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave, that sets in motion his own arrest and his own death. There's all these things playing into this moment. So when the Jews say, oh, look how much he loved him. Come on. He did love, he loved Lazarus. But what he's feeling in this moment, what moved him in his spirit and troubled him was much greater than a friend who had passed and he's about to raise. He felt the gravity of all of it. Now, Jesus moves towards the tomb and says he's moved again. He's still not out of this moment of feeling. Martha tries to warn him. He's been in there four days. I don't think you want to go in there. She had no clue, did she? Jesus prays a quick prayer and he says, Lord, you're about to do something amazing. <laughs> but would you use this so that they would believe you sent me? And listen, I think this is so interesting. Know this. Every miracle Jesus ever performed and every miracle ever performed is for a purpose that Jesus gives us the answer to in this prayer. Every miracle is to do what? Help people believe that God the Father sent his son to this earth to save and redeem us. That's what the purpose of every miracle is. Every one. And Jesus tells us, Lord, help this miracle that we're about to do. Help it do something in their lives that they believe you sent me. And he says, remember this phrase? Lazarus, come out, come forth. And like a, like a scene out of a movie, here comes a mummy. Lazarus is wrapped from head to toe in grave clothes, looking like a mummy, but ready to get out. Probably had a smile on his face. And what did Jesus say? He said, hey, pull all those grave clothes off of him, get them off of him, and let him go. It's an amazing moment. It's an amazing miracle. And again, Jesus is preparing his disciples for a greater miracle, his own resurrection. Six days before he's arrested, I want us to look at this. Jesus, after he raises Lazarus, he goes to a little town 
called Ephraim, which is just a little north of Jerusalem. And uh, they hang out there. And at this point, like I told you, he now has an arrest warrant for, for him. He's a wanted man. But he wants to be in places that mean something to him with people that mean something to him. And he's still teaching. He's still preparing. And so the family in Bethany, they want to throw Jesus a party. And that's where I want us to pick up in John chapter 12. Let's look at it together, can we? Verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Of course, Martha's doing what she does. She served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Just picture this. They're throwing Jesus a party because he has given their brother life. And and Lazarus is laid back, kicked back with Jesus. Because they loved each other and and they're celebrating. Martha's doing what she does, right? She's serving. And they're enjoying this party, this dinner. Look at verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he, was, uh, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, oh no, Judas, you leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. This is a special moment. This is a party. This is a dinner. We see Lazarus kicked back. We see Martha serving. And we see Mary doing what Mary does. She's a worshiper. She is a lover of Jesus. She, and she wants to be in his presence. And so she does something outrageous. <laughs> she does something incredible, right? She does something incredible in this moment. The perfume, according to uh, J- Judas, he gives us a value to what she places on Jesus' feet. He says, why was this not cashed in, right? This is 300 denarii. That's basically 300 days wages. In today's time, it would, it would equal somewhere around $25,000. Just take a minute. So you can imagine this moment, right? Mary's, Martha's serving, Lazarus is kicked back, and all of a sudden the room goes quiet. You can hear a pin drop because Mary walks in with the equivalent of $25,000, and she gets on her hands and knees, and she breaks this thing, and she, she pours this out on Jesus' feet. Unbelievable moment of worship. Now, this could have been a family heirloom. Maybe they, when they saw her carrying it, maybe they went, oh, she's got that. What's she going to do with that? Or maybe they were wealthy. We don't know the situation with this family, but whatever the case, this is an extremely extravagant gesture. She pours it out on Jesus' feet and on the floor. This is what Mary's saying. She's saying and she's teaching us, there's nothing we possess that's too grand, too good, too much. Our greatest, most outrageous act of worship and surrender could never match the worth of Jesus. Nothing. She's saying there's nothing I have in this life that I'll withhold from Jesus. She's saying there's nothing I have 
even in my body, that I'll withhold from Jesus. She dries his feet with her hair. Some of you remember the phrase that Paul uses in one of his letters. He says that a woman's hair is her glory. You remember that phrase? Have you heard that phrase? In other words, Paul's saying, this is the most beautiful attribute of a woman, her hair. And so here Mary is saying, I'm taking my best, my cleanest, my glory, my most beautiful, and I'm wiping the dirtiest, the most lowly aspect of Jesus' human body because there's nothing in my life I withhold from my Savior. He's worth it all. And this that I pour on his feet, it means nothing to me compared to his worth. I love this phrase. I mentioned it earlier in the service. The Bible says that the fragrance of that sacrifice she makes, the fragrance of that perfume fills the house. Can I just tell you something? When you worship in such a way that your incredible value of Jesus approaches his worth, the fragrance of that worship will fill the house. It'll be It'll be intoxicating. It'll be contagious. I believe that. Whether it's your home or this house, when you worship in that way, worship will fill this house. The fragrance of your worship will be contagious and intoxicating. It'll fill this place. Something interesting about this story before we close, I just want to mention this to you as we go here in just a minute. There's a character introduced in this story that's not a part of the family. We got Martha, we got Mary, we got Lazarus. We've kind of heard their story, but then all of a sudden, John introduces this character, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, into this story. And Judas rebukes Mary for her sacrifice. And then Jesus rebukes Judas. And I want you to see Judas' heart is as far away from Mary's heart as it could possibly be. Judas has a wrong heart. Mary's heart is pure and perfect. It's beautiful. She's a sinner, but she knows she's a sinner. That's why she's so grateful. They couldn't be further from each other. She brings a sacrifice of worship. Judas only is thinking about himself. He's selfish. Jesus says, leave her alone. He gives three reasons. I'm going to give them to you this morning. He says, number one, Judas, you're not always going to have me. In six days, I'm going to be dead. You're not always going to have me. I'm not always going to be here. In other words, Judas, clearly you don't value my life, my presence, my worth. You don't value any of that. On the other side, Mary is saying, your presence, your life, your being here with me is everything I have and I bring everything to you. Do you see the difference? Jesus says, Judas, leave her alone. You're not always gonna have me. Then he says, secondly, you're always gonna have the poor. Because see, Judas tries to play it like this. Judas says, this could have been given to the poor. Now, was Judas wanting to give it to the poor? According to John, John says it wasn't anything about the poor. He says, uh, Judas was a thief. And his only interest was, we could have put that $25,000 in the money bag, and I could have put it in my pocket. That's what Judas was thinking. See, Judas had a problem. He didn't worship Jesus as his God. He worshiped money as his God. Church, let that be a warning for us. Let that be something that is serious enough to consider for ourselves. Money doesn't matter. 
over a relationship with Jesus. He's trying to tell Judas this. Judas is not getting it. His only interest is himself, not the presence of Jesus. And then he says an interesting phrase. It's actually the first phrase he makes. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for my burial. A lot of people think he's talking about, Jesus is talking about the actual ointment. A lot of people think he's talking about the the perfume. But uh, one of the scholars that I really enjoy, some of his teaching, and that's John Piper, he says this, he says, I don't think it's the ointment. I think she's poured out the ointment on his feet. I think it's gone. And, and, you know, Mary doesn't seem to be the type to hold back. You know what I mean? Like, well, just a little here. She, man, she poured it out just as she poured out her own spirit at his feet. Piper says, I think what he's saying is leave her alone so that she has this moment. This is a beautiful moment of transcendence happening right in here in this moment. A moment of wonder. A moment of joy. A moment that she'll need to be reminded of in a week. When she sees my dead body, she's going to need to remember that she worshipped me as God. She worshipped me as the one who brought life from death. She's going to need this at my burial. And again, Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he's gone. Jesus went to the place that was special to him. He did it with people that was special to him. And he did his best to prepare them for life without him. As I close, I'll just say this. Somehow, 2,000 years later, I still believe God is asking us the question that Jesus had to ask Martha. Do you believe this? She had seen him do miracles. She knew what he could do. And yet, in that moment, Jesus had to ask her, Martha, do you, do you believe this? And so I ask you the same question this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe it? And as your heart is asking that question, I also just ask you this. Who do you resemble in this story? Who in this story do you connect with, good or bad? Maybe it's Mary, because listen, she's amazing. This is Mary with her heart wide open, loving Jesus, falling on her face before Jesus at his feet, serving, not reserving anything from herself or from her possessions or her body. Lord, everything is yours. I give it to you. What a beautiful example of who we need to be with our Savior. Maybe you're there. Praise God for you. Maybe you're like Martha. Man, you're busy. You got things to do, places to go, people to see. But sadly, when you do that, somehow you've missed relationship. Not just relationship with people. You've missed that too because for some reason we get so busy that seems to be the only thing that matters. But you've missed relationship with Jesus. And he's just, he's quietly waiting. Hey, when you get finished with whatever you're doing there, I'll be here. Maybe you identify with Martha. Maybe you identify with Lazarus. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you know that there's some aspect of your relationship with God that is absolutely dead. Maybe your marriage is dead. Maybe your obedience to God is just dead. Maybe you're struggling with an addiction. Maybe you have no hope and you feel dead inside. Friend, let me tell you, he speaks life to that that which is dead. Jesus said, Lazarus, get up and come out here, brother. 
Come on. And he says it to you this morning. What is dead in your life? What is dead in your heart? Get up and come on. Come to life. I'll give you life. And you know what else? He's going to encourage you to do this. Remove everything that smells like death. Remove everything that that reminds you of death. Maybe relationships, it may be addictions, it may be places that you've been or people you've been around. But remove those things from your life, just as those grave clothes were for Lazarus. And go, be free, let him go, he said. Because when you can remove those things from your life, God will give you freedom in him that you will not believe. Do you need to be brought to life this morning? Or lastly, maybe you identify sadly with Judas. Judas is such a sad character. Here Judas had been with Jesus. He saw these miracles. He knew Jesus was the real deal. He knew, you would think he would know. And yet Judas is selfish. Judas doesn't worship Jesus as God. Judas doesn't care about the presence of God. He only cares about the money he could steal. And if you identify with Judas, listen, friend, even you can come to this altar today and find the one that can resurrect your life. We still have time. You still have time. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Don't wait till tomorrow. You don't know if you have tomorrow. None of us do. And so I go back to the beginning of the message and I say, what would that be like if somebody told you you only have a few days to live? Would you be ready? Would you be ready to go? Would you have been worshiping Jesus with all that you have and all that you are, bringing it to him? Lord, everything is yours. Because if you're not ready this morning, I want to tell you, we're going to sing a song and we would love to help you prepare to be ready. We're going to sing. I'm going to be up here. Brother Jerry's going to be down here. And if you want to talk with us, you want to pray with us, we'll receive you. We'll pray with you. The rest of us are going to worship. We're going to sing. Would you search your heart for what matters most? Would you search your life? Would you search your heart and say, God, is there anything that you need to do in me? Who who do I need to resemble? God, do you... Am I too much like Lazarus? Is there too many dead things in my life? Am I too much like Martha? I'm just so busy, I don't have time to have a relationship with you. Or Lord, am I just so far from you? I don't even acknowledge that you're present, that you're real, that you're here. Friend, you have this moment. Make a good decision and be ready. Would you pray with me? Lord God, the only one worthy of our worship, the only one worthy of our lives, Lord, thank you that you resurrected me. Lord, I want to throw you a party because you resurrected me and my dead heart. You didn't make me better, Jesus. You brought me from death to life. And God, for every person in this building today or any person listening to the sound of my voice, God, I pray that they know the truth of your resurrection, that you are the resurrection and the life. That they know you as their Savior. And if there's one person here, Lord, that doesn't know you, would you draw their hearts 
to yourself. Would you save them today by your grace? Do it, Lord, for your own glory. Lord, do it today in mercy and in grace over their lives as we submit to you, as we bow before you, and we thank you for this resurrection life you give us. We worship you, Father. It's in your precious and wonderful name we pray. Move us today in that name. Amen.